Hello there, and welcome to the Red Special Guitar Podcast with me, John Underhill. If you're brand new to the channel, then thank you so much for stopping by. We really appreciate all the support that we can get. Now, if this is your first time here, then welcome and thanks for stopping by to see what all of this is about. And what is it about? Well, it's all about Brian May's legendary homemade guitar that he built with his father, the Red Special. And Brian built the guitar when he was only 16 years old and has gone on to use that same guitar for the next nearly 60 years of his life. And what do we do on the podcast? Well, we talk to the individuals around the worldwide community of fans of the Red Special, all about how that story has inspired them and what it's led them on to do in their life. Now, if that sounds like something that you'd be interested in watching or listening to, then please make sure that you like and subscribe to this channel. Find us on Facebook and Instagram so you know when things are being posted and when you can catch up on new episodes. You can find us on all podcast sites. Make sure to check out our brand new TikTok page. And if you really, really want to help the channel grow and feel like this is something you can get behind, then please consider finding us on Patreon and becoming a patron. I've got a lovely little community of patrons that help me out with lots of things. They get to talk about guests, upcoming episodes, questions for guests, and it makes a wonderful little place that's safe and away from the problems of the world so you can go and chat and have fun. Now on to today's episode and without shadow of a doubt the one we've all been waiting for our 20th episode on the podcast and we've managed to speak to Dr Brian Harold May himself. Now this happened about a week and a half after the UK Red Special Guitar Meetup in October in 2022 and it's been very hard for me to keep it quiet to all of you and to put this together without letting any of you know what happened. But I would like you to sit back and relax, make sure you've got a nice drink, turn off any notifications on your phone, make sure that you've got a good hour and a bit of time to listen and enjoy with me welcoming Bry to the Red Special Guitar Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen of the Red Special Guitar Podcast, it is my great pleasure today to introduce Dr. Brian Harold May to the Red Special Guitar Podcast. Hey folks, <laughs> happy to be speaking to you. Hi Brian, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. Like I said, a little stressed, but fine. There's always stuff to stress you, isn't there, in life? But uh, no, I'm good, thanks. Yeah, all things considering, I did smash my knee in, which is not helping. Doing something st stupid. <laughs> I was fine all the way through the tour, thank God, yeah. running around on the stage. But I came back and went to a party of, of an old friend of ours, and they had a bowling alley. So I thought, yeah, I could do that. And my missus goes, you don't want to do that. You're 75 years old. Why would you be? I went, no, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. Anyway, I smashed my knee, and I'm suffering for it now, but uh, it'll probably be fine. Do you get the, I, I told you so afterwards? Or do oh, you... yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> In good measure. Yes, I do. Excellent. I'm glad you're not immune from that as well, because. Uh... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for, um, I know you're really busy, Bryce. So thanks very much for agreeing to come on. I know you're the, obviously the most requested guest for the podcast. That's and, brilliant. Um... I'm very happy. <laughs> I hope I, I can. Uh... Be a good value, yeah. So anything you want, I'm all, I'm all yours. Definitely. No, um, so normally I would ask our podcast guests after asking them how they are, how did they first come across Queen? But it doesn't quite seem like the right question to ask you. Yeah, let me see now. <laughs> wow. 
Yeah, it's funny when you think back, you know, we, we had no idea all this was going to happen. We're boys with dreams and um, and we just gradually gravitated together, which is a miracle, really, because it's, it's the kind of partnership we had, which you couldn't possibly put together, I don't think. Um, I think they put the monkeys together, didn't they? Sort of from the outside, just put them together. And actually, probably worked out quite well. But the, the skills that we had were so incredibly complementary, although we didn't realise it at the time, complementary to each other, that we were just incredibly lucky. It just worked out fantastic. Uh, and it became a family, became our family. How do we meet? Well, first of all, I can do it very quickly. Roger and I met in the jazz club room of Imperial College, having... Uh, put an ad up on the wall and Roger's flatmate saw it and the, the advert said wanted drummer who can do anything that Ginger Baker, um, Mitch Mitchell or Keith Moon can do and Roger went yeah I can do that <laughs> how long he came set up his drums and I was amazed at the sound he made I think that's I've said this a million times you know I'd seen a lot of drummers by that time who hit things Roger came along and started tuning them and, and doing little snare rolls and everything. And I just thought, bloody hell, I didn't know, drummer could, <laughs> I didn't know drummers did that stuff. And, um, and then we started to play and immediately something happened. And something good, I've got to say. That, that partnership with Roger became Smile and Tim Staffel was the singer. And a friend of Tim Staffel's was this rather un unorthodox guy who spent most of his time drawing pictures of Jimi Hendrix and it was Freddie at art school so we got to know Freddie and um, we, we didn't actually know that he sang at the time <laughs> until a little bit later and um, Freddie we oh, Freddie Freddie was a friend from somebody I'd lived a couple of hundred yards away from all my childhood in Felton but I'd never met he used to come and see our gigs and I actually saw him with his old band Ibex not in a concert, but in sort of rehearsal situation. And uh, they were playing something called Stone Cold Crazy at the time, which went... And he had these frenetic words for it. And I went, maybe I could give you a different riff for that, which would match the words better. Anyway, it became... It became like, apparently, the world's first thrash metal song. Don't know if it's quite that, but yeah. So that's Freddie, and he came along, and lo and behold, he could sing. Uh, and he rushed around making a lot of noise, and uh, it was a, it was a bit manic. And we all thought, "Ooh, it's going to work." <laughs> anyway, that's Freddie. And then John, we tried lots of bass players, and all of them did slightly odd things that didn't quite fit with us. They're all good, but it just didn't work. And then suddenly along comes John, who's a friend of a friend, actually a, the boyfriend of a friend of a friend. And he comes along and we just, I don't even remember sort of auditioning John. He just came in and we thought, oh yeah, that's fine. <laughs> He's good, we'll keep him. And there he was. So that's the four of us. We came together very, you would say randomly now, I suppose there was no plan to it. It just happened very fortuitously. And the rest is history, and it's a history that I'm very proud of and very grateful for. And that's a long answer to a short question. I better do better. <laughs> it's a great answer. No, it's brilliant. And I mean, in the in the podcast, we then talk about normally 
so when did you become aware of the red special and and the story of it obviously it's a slightly different question for yourself because i mean i've heard lots of interviews where people talk to you about it and it feels like you only ever we, we hear a little bit of the story but mm. to me there's so much more having made my own there's so much more involved in just just building it than there is this is a bit of my knitting needle and this is a fret um mum's buttons how did it come to be bright is it just a quick dad i want to pick an electric guitar or was it well it goes back further than than that really it goes back to me having an acoustic guitar which my parents bought me and it was a big stretch for them i, I only realized that now they didn't have enough money to pay the gas or the electricity but they bought me this guitar which i think cost about eight pounds it was a lot for them in those days and lovely little acoustic guitar, de-arm, and I later found out that George Harrison had almost the identical guitar when he was a kid. Um, and suddenly I'm looking at all these people, I'm looking at Buddy Holly, and then I'm looking at Hank Marvin and all this guitar music emerging, and they have an electric guitar and I have an acoustic guitar. So what do I do? I look and I think, well, that seems to have some kind of pickup on it. And, and of course, my dad's an electronics expert, so he goes, yes, obviously, that's a transducer of some kind. You've got magnets there, you've got a wire. And um, if you interrupt the magnetic field of that magnet, it's going to create a current in those wires. And that's, that's a guitar pickup. Now, I don't know if Les Paul actually invented it, but he certainly invented forms of that thing. But I invented my own. I got some Eclipse magnets from Kingston Market got some 48 gauge wire and me and my dad well actually really my dad made a lovely winding thing which would not stress the wire because it's very it's almost as thin as a human hair this stuff so you can't stretch it you mustn't stress it uh, so we had this lovely winder and I just sat there winding wire around magnets and that became my first pickup which I screwed onto the acoustic guitar it's two wires come out of it so I connected them to the input of my dad's uh, radio stroke record player. Now, I have to say here, my dad made everything. He made everything in our house. Anything that was electric, he made. So I plugged it into this nice little cabinet, which was for the record player, which he'd also made, and um, played the guitar, and it came out. <laughs> it was like, that was a real eureka moment. And it sounded really good. It didn't sound like Hank Marvin. Didn't sound like Buddy Holly, but it, it sounded amazing. Uh, it's just a whole new dimension. You, know, you 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 hit just one string on one fret, and it makes this stupendous noise. So I think I became quite unpopular with the neighbours at that point. But that was the beginning. And then, of course, you start looking. Some of my friends had electric guitars, proper electric guitars, but the cheap version. So they wouldn't have a Stratocaster or a, a Gibson Les Paul. They'd have the copies of those things. So they'd be kind of Selmers and Watkins or whatever cheaper versions still pretty good one of my best friends had a colorama and um it was a very nice bit of gear nicely polished wood and everything nice pickups so i thought i need one of them but i couldn't even afford the cheaper ones there's no way i could do that so it's it was a case of we should make one we can make one better than that so me and my dad thought we can do anything yeah we can make a guitar and let's make it from scratch so let's let's go into the theory of what we want it to do and actually design it that way from scratch. So um, around that time, 
people like Pete Townsend and Jeff Beck are already operational. I think a lot of people think that I'm the same generation as them, and I almost am, but they were up and running long before we were. I was still at school and college while they were out making a big noise on the on the circuit. So I'd seen Jeff Beck with a guitar, and I, which was designed to feedback this Gibson Les Paul guitar. It's completely solid and heavy. You know, you can hardly pick the thing up. It's all about not feeding back. That's why they designed it that way, because they tried to amplify acoustic guitars to go with orchestras and bands and whatever, and they always fed back. Like, mm, that's what happens when you try and um, amplify an acoustic guitar. So they'd made these things so that they could be amplified without this horrible thing called feedback. Anyway, Jeff Beck's there with one of these things, and he's got it turned up really loud he's got a very high gain in his system and he just touches it and the thing goes on forever the note goes on forever a bit like they talk about in spinal tap you know this goes on forever. <laughs> and i saw him do it at the marquee on one of his very first dates when he joined the yardbirds he's doing this amazing thing then he takes the guitar off and kind of spins it around on the floor and it keeps making noises and it's like the thing is speaking it's like it's alive that's one of the most inspiring things I ever saw. And I thought, that's what I want my guitar to do. Um, I want it to be something which is so alive I can hardly keep it in harness. Um, so my guitar had little, little acoustic pockets in it so it would be live. It was a theory. I didn't really have much basis for that. But I thought, you know, these little pockets are going to resonate. It's going to pick up the vibration in the air and it will give that effect. Um, and hopefully it will be controllable. So we started work on designing this guitar and everything was from scratch. The shape was basically my little um, childhood guitar and with my own cutouts on it. I, I did my own cutaways. Sketched it all out, that's the shape I want. Um, and then we set about making it out of bits that were lying around because again we had nothing, we had no money, we just had a a spare bedroom that my dad had all his tools in and bits of junk that had been saved. One of the bits of junk was a, a fireplace, a beautiful piece of a mahogany fireplace, beautiful straight grain, lovely dense wood. So that became the neck. And that took a while because we had no p power tools. So it's cutting it out with saws, it's planing it, it's a bit of chiseling, lots of sandpapering. And um, gradually this neck emerged from this uh, this 100-year-old fireplace. Um, I don't know how much detail you, you want to go in, into. No. Kind of, you kind of know a lot. A lot, of yeah. guys, a lot of you guys that I'm talking to now know all this anyway. But, yeah, all the stuff that was lying around uh, we used. And it's a piece of table that was the, the oak piece that... Uh, takes the whole strain of the strings and that was like a piece of steel it was so hard to work I can still remember trying to chisel that out it was really your hands bled and all the machines all the, all the tools got blunted <laughs> so incredibly hard this piece of piece of oak uh, and that became I mean obviously that was never going to move so it's, it's still there in the center of the guitar and it's never moved more than a a millionth of an inch, I don't think, throughout the life of the guitar. So I had my neck and I had the basis of the of the body. The rest of the body was made out of block wood because I figured the rest of the body isn't 
taking the strain so it could be whatever I want it to be and it was easier to take little pieces out of the block board to make those um, to make those cavities that I wanted for the resonant acoustic pockets as I call them uh, and then that was fastened around the oak insert and that holds all the electrics and whatever and then we just felt our way my dad was very good at pretty much anything he, he turned his hand to whether it was electronics or joinery or bits of metalwork and stuff and he kind of led me in many ways but I was very hungry I, I wanted to experiment so one of the things we did was get a piece of wood uh, put some machine heads this end and some um, sort of pegs the other end and we stretched the strings over and tried various different tremolo arrangements I had a sort of um, cylinder thing with um, with ball bearings that was one of the things we tried um, a couple of different things and then I kind of thought well the whole thing is friction because I mean I was brought up to be a scientist and I thought the reason these things are notorious for, for going out of tune is because there's too much friction in the system and I'd done physics at school I knew the hysteresis curve you, you know go you're around here as, as you as you move the thing backwards and forwards on the graph of um, stress uh, well movement versus uh, force put in you get this hysteresis curve which never goes back to the same place it got to unless it comes along the same path it started anyway so I thought you need to get rid of this hysteresis so I, I set about designing everything so that the strings could move freely and so the idea came for this thing that rocked on a knife edge and I don't think anyone had done it I, had, I never saw it all I saw was um, arrangements like Fender had where um, you had screws and the screws were not tight enough to hold the, the, the bridge piece still and so it moved and that it, was, it seemed like an accidental arrangement to me so I thought you know the, there's a sort of knife edge thing going on there with the screws I thought if I design a proper knife edge it should be very low friction so found found a piece of old mild steel fashioned it into the right shape and made a groove in it my dad said okay this is going to work but you need to have a case hardened thing to go into that groove and a knife edge uh, this is little bits of stuff which I never would have known if my dad hadn't been into that so we we filed it all up and then on my mum's gas ring we're putting this special stuff on to case harden it harden the outside so that again that's something which will never move it's so hard and what it does is it seats itself into the groove that I made in the the mild steel thing that can hold the, the strings and again it's, it, nothing's ever changed it's the, the moment we did it it just seated itself and there it is and there's very little friction so that's good but that's my piece of junk the um it rocks because it's held in equilibrium by the strings pulling it this way I'm talking about the, the rocking plate strings pull it this way underneath there's some springs which push it the other way and these are again they're, they're hanging around these strings they're motorbike valve springs from an old 500cc Norton I think my dad was quite into motorbikes when he was young um, and it just worked and made little things made special things to hold them in the right place very much kind of following our noses I suppose and so we had a tremolo which probably I should have patented but you know life's too short I think you know so I'm happy that other people use that method now and then what do you do at the bridge itself because the bridge if the strings moving with this tremolo 
they're going to file away at whatever they're going over and they're going to they're going to get broken pretty soon which did happen with tremolos so i thought oh you could have a little roller which they could go over in fact you could have a lot of little rollers one for each string so they can all move as much as they want and again no friction no wear and um so it's a piece of aluminium lying around i made moves in it cut it into pieces um and then for the rollers i had a 3 uh stainless steel rod it's the kind of thing my dad had his in his workshop and cut pieces of it off put it in a hand drill hand drill is holding a held in a vice turn it around and i've got my own kind of lathe and i've got a file here so i make these little rollers with that arrangement every time you get to the point where it's nearly finished you slip and it goes <laughs> you've lost the end of the roller so you have to start all over again so it's, it was a tortuous process but i managed to make six of them put them in the slots and sure enough they they moved all right so the strings go over rollers no friction there the other end what happens at the other end you've got a nut normally um, which the strings go through and i didn't like the look of the nuts that my friends had on their guitars they seem to be sort of very indeterminate what are they supposed to do are they supposed to hold them rigidly this way that way what's supposed to be going on so my again back to my old acoustic guitar it had a nut and a zero fret so i thought this is good because i can separate out what's doing what the nut is just working this way to hold the strings up so i can minimize um the pressure on that zero fret and the nut is only positioning them sideways so I can make it so that they hardly touch it how do I do that I make it the strings almost go straight through because of the shape of the the, um, the headpiece so it was all kind of theories but I was lucky most of it worked um, I was aware that if I didn't have any pressure on that zero fret it wouldn't work because it it wouldn't act as a fret you know and the, all the energy would disappear so it's got a i i decided it should have about the same pressure as all the other frets were going to have when i was fretting them that's the other reason i love the zero fret not everybody does but i like it because you're getting the same tone from that as all the other frets there's not, there's not a different sound to the open string so i'm blethering on about all this things like the end of the tremolo arm i'm looking at hank marvin's stratocaster in the picture on the f album cover it's got this lovely sort of um bezel on the end of it and i thought how do i do that oh my mum's knitting needles would work <laughs> i get a, get a big fat knitting needle again put it in the drill turn the drill and fashion it um as if it was a lathe and i made this nice little thing which just popped on the end of the tremolo arm the tremolo arm was a piece of steel which is uh, plated with um, chromium, I suppose, cadmium, whatever. And it was a piece of steel which was designed to hold up my saddlebag on my bike. And by this time, I didn't need my bike that much. I didn't need the saddlebag for sure. So I used that. And it was just the right kind of um, thing to put on as a trembling arm. So you can tell it's all bits and pieces. The, the, the markers for the fingerboard, my mum had some great things in a button box which she had you know and she would go in there if she was mending stuff and some of them were made out of mother of pearl the original mother of pearl beautiful colors to them i thought well, that's what i need so she was kind enough to let me take them out and i made a special jig for filing them down and making them exactly the right shape so that they would fit in the holes that i was going to make in the in the fingerboard so in a nutshell that's how i made a the guitar <laughs> <laughs> there's all sorts of other stuff i mean how do you do the 
the white edging that was a piece of edging off of some stuff that people used to edge shelves with in, in supermarkets well, actually, I don't know if there were supermarkets in those days but in shops and um, and how do you do the finish well the only thing I could find was this thing called Rustin's plastic coating now I know you guys know all about this because it's become like a, a legendary thing has it but it was great my dad was very into it because he'd done French polishing he, my dad had done everything, so he knew how to French polish. And this stuff was very close to French polish. It's a sort of iterative process. You keep putting more and more on, and you you, you sand it down with very fine um, glass paper, whatever it was. can't remember the name of it now. Um, and you just build up and build up until you've got a nice, shiny surface, which is quite durable as well. And it's holding in the colour of the wood, which you've already stained. It's faded a lot over the years. It wasn't that colour originally. It was quite red when it was made. And usually when people see my guitar in the flesh for the first time, they go, that's not right, it's supposed to be red special. It's, it's brown, isn't it? And I go, well, yeah. <laughs> and I suppose under the stage lights, you can't really tell because it could be any colour hitting it. But it was a red special. It was pretty red in its day. And it's interesting. I'm zooming around now, forgive me, but we have a guitar company now, which thrills me to death because we can now make those kind of instruments and get them to kids who can't afford anything else. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that it's, you know, for its for what it is, it's it's as cheap as it can possibly be, inexpensive as it possibly can be. It's it's no it's, it's no way cheap. There's no sort of cussing corners, but it's it's meant to be a, an affordable instrument, and um, we offer them in any color you want, pretty much. We offer them in like. <laughs> sunburst which are really beautiful we often like there's a baby blue there's a i think well, there's a black one definitely a lot of colors and everybody says i want red <laughs> so so we have a red one and then again when people get it they, they they're happy until they see mine and they go oh it's not the same color as yours and i and i went i go no i told you so <laughs> <laughs> but we did arrange um, to have some sort of truly um, red special color guitars, which we made. We, we did a, a limited edition of them. So they are very similar to the color of my guitar, quite browny red. Nobody wanted them. So there you go. They want red. People want red. And why not? I guess that, that's what I went for. Um, so, yeah, lots of Rustin's plastic coating on there. And um, it's... It's done me proud, the whole thing has, you know. And you probably know I've never refretted that guitar. No. The ground it's covered is incredible. That fret, I didn't make the fret, fret wire. I went to this place called Clifford Essex, which was in Cambridge Circus. Um, it's that little place where the Colise, no, the Palace Theatre is now. And there was a little kind of... Um, well, it's sort of close to Tin Pan Alley, but there's a whole street there, Earlham Street, which had all kinds of musical things, amazing, like a piano shop, an accordion shop. And one of the shops was called BMG, which is odd, isn't it? It's called Banjo, Mandolin and Guitar. Remember that name, BMG, you know, that's where I got, they had everything for guitars, for, for guitars, yeah, and banjos and mandolins and whatever. And one of the things they sold was fret wire. So I bought some and took it home, but it was really high. And it, it wasn't the same kind of feel as my old acoustic, which I keep coming back to. So I thought, well, I've got to file it down. So I made a jig to file it down, smooth it out, change, make its profile nice and smooth. And then I made a jig to curve it because I wanted a curved fingerboard. So thing that would just press it to the right shape. 
and um, and put these things in. But those frets, I must have been lucky because they are still there and they still work. The only thing I've replaced is the zero fret because there's quite a bit of wear there, obviously. Um, everything else is original and that really blows people's minds, including mine. One day, I suppose the day will come when I'm going to have to start replacing it, but I'm, I'm not looking forward to that because it will change the feel of that yeah. guitar. You know, I'm sort of, that guitar's part of me, it's moulded to my fingers. So there you go. Sorry, was that the answer you wanted? Yeah. <laughs> That's a very good answer. Long answers, I'm sorry. Thank you for these things, by the way. You, you gave me some presents, didn't you? I love we did. sixpence. Amazing. <laughs> It'd be treasured. I have a collection of all the sixpences we've ever made. Yep. I've been trying to mount them in a box very unsuccessfully, but this will go in there. I, I love it. Who made this? So that's um, from the US meetup in Phoenix earlier this year. So it's um, designed by Luke Holwerder, um, who arranges the US meetup, and then he um, helped us with the design for the UK ones. It's absolutely beautiful. Thank you. I love stuff like that. I will really treasure that. And this is really nice. Beautifully done. Oh, from Carlos. So Carlos came all the way from Mexico to attend the meetup. Fantastic. I love it. Thank you. And this, which is very good. This. <laughs> so that's um, our, one of our friends, uh, Matt Netherwood from Yonderbosk, who um, oh. is capable of making many, many things. It's amazing. So including pickups including... and amplifiers and doing oh. things like that. It's great. It says friends will be friends on it, but I thought it should say it's slate. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I can make another one. Very it's good. Yeah. Well, I'm, I guarantee you, as soon as the episode comes out, he'll make you one with its slate. Written. <laughs> <laughs> it's lovely. I love stuff like this. It's great. And thank you, guys. Thank you all for taking such an interest and being kind of devoted to this thing which which i'm devoted to obviously you know it's my most treasured thing it's kind of part of me bro i think that really comes across and one of the questions i wanted to ask you is when you started out building the guitar did you ever build it with its future in mind or was it i'll build a guitar to play for a few years until i can afford a, a different one or was it let's build a guitar to rock you know what, what was the the mind where were you trying to aim for when you did it Ooh, I think you'd need to put me under a hypnotic trance if I can. I can only <laughs> back into my mind in those days. I don't really know, John. Um, I did have insane dreams. I did dream of one day doing what Buddy Holly did, and and um, and, and later Hank Marvin, and well, later than that, Pete Townsend and Eric Clapton, Jeff Beck, and everything. That was a dream, definitely. So I definitely had that in my mind somewhere. Whether I believed that the instrument I was making would take me on that whole journey, I don't actually know. I think distantly I did. I think I had confidence that I could make an instrument that which would be at least as good as what everybody else had made, and maybe better. Yeah. My, my dad gave me this kind of insane devotion to excellence. He used to say, if a thing's worth doing, it's worth doing properly. And I used to think, yeah, if a thing's worth doing, it's worth doing better than anyone else has ever done it. It was a real kind of passion. So the guitar was a real, uh, yeah, kind of a dream project to me. It's always on different levels, isn't it? Because on one hand, you, you have this confidence that you can succeed and it drives you on. On another level, you have a whole sea of doubt, like I'm making a fool of myself here. 
you know, this is not going to work and, you know, it's not going to sound like the other guitars. In fact, when I realised that my guitar sounded different from anything that was out there, I had a bit of a confidence crisis because I thought, this isn't going to work. It doesn't sound like a Stratocaster. It doesn't sound like a, a Gibson. It sounds, in some ways, a, a bit like something between those two. But also, it's got a different character in the way it sustains and everything. Maybe this is a bad thing. You know, maybe this means that I can't use it to make records with. And gradually over the years, I realised that its unique character was a plus, along with the probably the unique way that I play because of that. Uh, I mean, every guitarist is unique, really. I have that f fond belief, you know. No, no two people play the same riff the same way, ever. And that's the joy of it. It's one of the joys of yeah. guitar, isn't it? I never forget my hero, Hank Marvin, is in the studio with me and I'm playing on his record. He made a version of We Are The Champions. And we kind of swapped guitars. <laughs> and I thought, what is he going to sound like on my guitar? Is he going to sound like me? He picked it up. He sounded like Hank Marvin. <laughs> Utterly, completely like Hank Marvin. It just sounded like anything else he could pick up. And, um, and people said that when I picked up his guitar, it kind of sounded like me. So it, it's, it's funny. So much of it is in the fingers. But the guitar is still your closest... Um, thing it's 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 almost like part of your arm and the longer you do it and the older you get the more it, that happens i think and it, it's unconscious i think it's there from the beginning but it grows as as you as you mature with the instrument um you know i pick up a guitar most days and just do something just for fun or because there's something in my mind and so it's never far away from me and um there's a sort of unwritten bond that I have with it. And I think most guitarists are like that. And that's why we're all so individual. It becomes an outlet for how we feel, um, an outlet for our sort of composing um, efforts. And um, sometimes it's just an outlet for, for doing it. <laughs> you just want to pick it up and do that thing. I love the guitar so much. and None of that has abated over the years. I've never regarded it as a job playing guitar. It's always been a joy to do that and make that sound. I love the sound that we have on stage for it now. I have a lot to thank Pete for, Pete Malandrone, who spoke to you guys, didn't he? You know, yep, least, he did. You know, I mean, it's a succession of people. You know, I, I would always thank Jobby, uh, Brian Zellis, who was with me for many years, did some great stuff with me. But recently Pete has been on it, and we have this, and also Nigel Knight, who works behind the scenes on the on the uh, the magical electrics and between them they got me just the greatest guitar sound that i could ever wish for you know it, it, it's the way i dreamed it should be it's it's loud <laughs> it moves your body it moves the air around you it makes your stomach vibrate but also it's got a a, a warmth to it which i love i love the warmth the same as in, in a voice in a human voice it's got articulation to it, and it, in other words, you know, like the consonants when you speak, t -t 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 -t, it'll do all that as well. And, it, and that's a function of, um, and also it sustains, it, it sings for me. So if I can hear a song in my head, I can play it because this channel is always open. And it's a function of many things now. It's not a wire anymore that connects stuff up, it's all digital. Um, that's the big deal, you know, the, the, the radio system these days is all digital and they don't easily sound the same as the old wires do, so Nigel and Pete between them 
fix it up so that it sounds as close to the the analog situation as you could possibly get and actually a bit better which is great you know I, I have a little bit of room to turn it up so it will sustain a bit more go a little bit more into compression a bit more distortion whatever or less as I want it so I'm very lucky I have that voice and as soon as we plug it in and switch it on every time we're about to go out on tour I think yes I'm going to be happy with this I'm going to feel like I have my voice I can do what I need to do I can hit an A chord and people will go oh like I used to do when Pete Townsend yeah. Uh, yeah I owe a lot to Pete Townsend I, I should be telling him really I think I have, but not not enough really. You know, I mean, Pete Townsend, for for me and for Rog, I think, and the Who, uh, defined somehow distilled that danger and excitement that we all wanted to see in a rock group, and I, that's inside me the whole time. It doesn't matter what the Who do now, or what they do in the future. Those moments when we saw them, when they were an embryonic, angry but incredibly adept uh, group on stage. I mean, it was dangerous. The only thing that's ever come close to me being that dangerous is Guns N' Roses. It's the same kind of feeling. You have no idea what's going to happen in, in the old days. Well, yeah, you know, talking like when I, when I went out on tour with them, you never knew if they were going to arrive on stage. You didn't know what was going to happen once they did, if they did. You know, was he was Axel going to sack the, the monitor mixer in the middle of the show? Was he going to walk off? You just didn't know. But when they hit it, it was magic. It was like, like a, like a jet plane taking off, and that to me is rock and roll. That's the way. That's the way the Who were. It was just it took you out of your your normal reality. It was like whoa. Hard to describe. Hard to put into words. But that's our dream. Um, me, Rog. Freddie and John, you know, we wanted to make people feel that way about what we were doing. They're almost kind of unseated by what they see. We want them to be transported by what we do. So it worked out well, really. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely did. <laughs> um, the community around the guitar is, is, with the advent of the internet and information and the fantastic book you, you put together with Simon Bradley and then um, the Bohemian Rhapsody film coming out and a, a brand new generation of people getting into it. We, we've now got a Facebook forum with over 5,000 members, um, oh. which they're based all around the world. And what's evident is that it's transferred, it's gone from being all about the intricate details of how you did this and that with a guitar to now just a wonderfully big community of people that just like spending time with each other. And it's a nice safe place to go and have a chat with friends and, um, did you ever expect anything like that to happen off the back of what you were doing? Or is, is that something that, that you've not considered? No, I, um, you know, this is all way beyond my wildest dreams, really, I have to be honest, really. You know, I, I didn't know there was anything going to happen beyond perhaps we might one day play the marquee and perhaps one day we might play the rainbow. You know, I didn't didn't have a vision beyond that. Honestly, no, it's all amazing. I'll tell you what, I should have had a clue because when we were starting out, we'd made the first album and we hired this, or our management hired this publicist called Tony Brainsby. I think he might still be around. And it was his job to try and us noticed 
and we have nothing going for us. We're not famous, you know, nobody's heard of any of us. And we're another rock group, you know, whatever, in my first album, yeah, what's the story, folks? And Tony Bransby would say things like, oh, I can get you Jackie. I can definitely get you one of Jackie. Jackie's the kind of magazine where they would ask you what your favourite colour was and what kind of girls you liked and all that sort of stuff, you know. And then he said, well, I can get you in a guitar magazine, but it's all going to, it's not going to be about you. It's going to be about the guitar. So the first major article we ever had in terms of publicity was an article in, I don't know what the magazine was called, but I've got it somewhere. And it was an article about the guitar. And it went a long way. It got a lot of attention because I was talking about what we were talking about, how it was made and everything. And people were eager to see it and, and hear what it sounded like. So the guitar early on became more famous than I was. Quite significantly, and a lot of people wanted to talk about their guitar and weren't actually particularly interested in what I was doing. So, yes, maybe I should have known. I don't know. It's, funny. <laughs> mm. it's just such a great story. And it, I know it's captured most of the everyone I've spoken to on the podcast has, has fallen in love with the music first, then gone, oh, how, what's that sound? How's that sound been created? And it's touched them emotionally in some level. And then you go looking at well, nowadays you Google what guitar does Brian May play? Oh, he built it himself with his dad. It's, and then you find out, oh, he built it when he was 16 and he's still playing it today. And so the, the, you fall further down the rabbit hole of, um, <laughs> of learning about the guitar and the story just starts to resonate a bit more because of knowing what something that you've done with your own father in your own life as he gets older means to you. And then yeah. I think the, the story so unique and if, if it wasn't real, I think people would struggle to believe it. Yeah, fact is stranger than fiction, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, I know what you mean. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I'm very. I mean, it keeps me close to my dad really because my dad's long gone. He only lived to the age of sixty-six, and that was hard. But I always have the guitar with me, and it's always like a piece of him as well as a piece of me. So that's really great. I've told these stories before, you know, my dad, there's an irony because my dad spent two years dedicated to making this guitar with me and then went in the complete opposite direction as far as using the thing. You know, he, he the idea of me quitting my studies and becoming what he called a pop star and playing that guitar was just so alien to him. It made him very unhappy. To the point where we we really didn't speak for quite a long time when I was starting off in in the band, and it was that was hard. It was painful, and it kind of pushed my mum over the edge. It was a real crisis in our family because my dad could not countenance the idea that that was a proper job. It's like yeah, you might do it for fun, but go off and do it. No, why would you do that? Um, and I've told the rest of the story. The rest of the story is that. When we played in Madison Square Garden, I put him on the Concord, um, along with my mum and my new wife and my new baby boy, and put them up in the Ritz Hotel in New York and said, order room service, and then they came to the show. And my dad, at the end of that show, came back and shook my hand and looked into my eyes and went, OK, I get it. That was big moment for me because we don't like disappointing our parents do we we think we do when we're 15 we think we hate everything that our parents can represent or whatever but actually we have this real need to to please i think to please the people who brought us up 
So that was a big deal for me. And there was a lot of stuff behind that, a lot of things with me and my dad. And I'm so happy that I got the opportunity to square everything up with him before he went. Because um, I discovered that there was a part of my dad that wanted to do what I'd done. And that's part of why he was so resistant about me doing it. Uh, he was a very good musician, my dad, very good piano player, good ukulele player as well, which is where I got my first chords from, playing Mr. Wu and um, and his Chinese laundry blues. So, yeah, that's... We um, spoke to Julian Hemingway, who I think played with you at the Radio Flyer, and he he um, mentioned that he got to, to meet your dad afterwards, and mm. your dad had started to take some screwdrivers to Julian's homemade guitar to try and have a look and see what he was doing. It's <laughs> <laughs> funny. I didn't know that. <laughs> My dad is one of these people. He's always had a screwdriver in his pocket. Yeah. <laughs> funny now, you know, pen, pen, screwdriver. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, um, it's a lovely moment when Julian describes it, just how I would imagine your dad to have been. I also wonder what he'd think, think about all of us making our own versions of the guitar and, and the meetup and wonder what, what he'd do if he if he was around to come and visit. He would love it like I do. He really would. He'd, he'd feel very, very happy and sort of fulfilled as I do. I think it's wonderful that what I've done sort of out of necessity, but also out of being driven, has inspired other people to, to get driven in, in the same way. It's brilliant, yeah. And some of the work I've seen is wonderful. I know some of you guys have made incredible instruments. It's a great compliment, and I'm very, very happy about that. It's certainly inspired a lot of people, not only with the guitars, but it's really interesting. The podcast is really set around the chat you would have at the end of the meetup at the bar. and. Mm. trying to capture people's stories in time really so that the next generation can listen to them and understand where we all came from and we all have this similar thing but your story of the red special is quite often not necessarily just inspired people to make guitars but mm. to how they live their life and to how they go about doing their work outside of guitars and then they found this group later on and gone, oh, i've always loved that story and i've gone off and done this it's it's really interesting listening to, to how everyone's been motivated by it. Mm, how interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that. That's amazing. That makes me feel good. Well, there's always something to to turn your hand to, isn't there? You know, there's always <laughs> and it doesn't matter who you are, you can find a different way to do something which people have been doing a certain way for for a lifetime. Yeah, I think there's always opportunities. I got very involved in designing stereoscopes. You, know, you probably know that as well. You know, yeah. that's part of the same thing. I just thought, well, I can do that. <laughs> I can get some cardboard and I can design it and then I can go to some guy who moulds plastic and we can make a plastic version of it. And, you know, it's that's given me great thrills, making the owl. And that's part of that whole passion I have for stereoscopy. And it was fantastic to be able to bring the two things together for the Queen in 3D book. Yeah. Those kind of things make me f feel very happy. I love bringing things together. I love bringing people together. Because I always think magic happens when you put great people together who are different in their skills. It happens in so many ways. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's... Um, the world is full of these opportunities. I'm glad it is because the world that we see in the newspapers is so depressing. Oh. It's just, I mean, it makes me actually feel ill. 
was talking to my daughter about it. She's very much like me. She says she finds it, it all mounts up and it, in the end you just feel helpless and frustrated and depressed. Reading about Ukraine, reading about China and Taiwan, reading about Iran and all the way women are treated, reading about, well, Armenia is threatened yeah. as well by its neighbours. And then looking at our own politicians and just thinking this is just so unbelievably bad you can't believe that it happens it's just embarrassing it's and um, it makes you angry you think how do these people get there how do we put up with this stuff why is our country not run by intelligent people why, why is it not some kind of meritocracy where people are actually qualified for the job they're doing and why do we not have people in charge of us who are decent and compassionate and tell the truth you would think they would be basic requirements for running a country. These guys have none of that, and it makes me angry and sad and despairing. I'm always on the verge of putting a great big rant on my Instagram, but I generally try to moderate myself because I like to be positive on the Instagram. I like to generate good stuff. I don't like tearing into people. Um, so I'm always on the verge of so much... I. In some ways, I wish I'd said some of it in recent months, particularly about Boris, who I think did some appalling things and was never really called to the task for them. I mean, the, the new woman, I, I can't even begin because it, it's so pitiful. She, um, You know, she's resigned just before we jumped on the call. I did not know that. Yeah, so we have, we have no PM any longer. Good Lord. Which is just... Well, isn't that interesting, isn't that interesting? But you know that this will all have been machinations behind the scenes and people will be aligning themselves to positions of potential power. Yep. And they'll be deciding whether they want to resign with her to give them a chance in the new regime or do they look better if they stand by even though they know she's useless. All this stuff will be going on. And you know that the, the decisions they're making won't be governed by what's best for the country, they'll be governed by what's best for me as a politician, how do I get more power? That's what I really, that what make, that's what makes me so disappointed about the system that we're in. And I wish I could change it. I've done a lot of work in Parliament, I don't know if you know, but we lobby for animals. We've done that for 10 years, me and Anne Brummer, and we've seen them all at work. We know how this thing works. And we're full of fight, you know, we're, we're never going to give up to try and save the badgers and, and stop uh, the blood hunts, stop the blood sports. But with this regime, if you look at it o over the, the course of the last 10 years since Cameron came into power, we've got nowhere because someone will always block us. There will always be a money interest, a selfish interest, um, which will stop, stop the animals being treated decently. And do animals matter? Well, some people will say, you guys care more about animals than people. But the funny thing is, as Ricky Gervais has pointed out, most people who are shitty to animals are shitty to people too. It almost, it's almost like without question. Yeah. And, um, so you're dealing with people who really have no morals, no empathy, uh, no decency. And that's hard. I would love to see it radically change. One of my favourite things was uh, after Boris went, they, they were looking for a new prime minister. And somebody said to me, yeah, trying to appoint a new conservative prime minister is like shitting in your pants and trying to change your, your, your shirt. You know, 
it needed a clean out at that point. It needed the whole bunch of them to go because they were all complicit in that nonsense. I've not heard that before, but that's brilliant. It's that's funny, and it's so true, though. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. That's how we got Liz Truss. Oh, because they didn't change their underpants. They didn't get out of there. They should. Ah, it's it's pitiful. So, but the thing is, the one the one thing the Tories are great at. See, I've tried to be neutral all these years. We've been in Parliament saying, you know, we don't care what party you're in. If you want to speak to us about animals, we're with you. So we were apolitical. And in some cases, it's great. There's somebody like Tracy Crouch, who is a very decent person, and she's a conservative. How she manages it, I don't know. But she is, you know, and she was one of these people, day before yesterday, who refused to vote for fracking, even though it was obviously that their jobs were threatened. They were going to withdraw the whip, etc. And she said, I don't care if you do that, you know, I'm going to vote for what I think is right. She is so alone, you know, there are so few people like that in the Tory party and in the parliament as a, as a, as a generalisation. So I've interrupted myself here. <laughs> what I'm going to say is the Tory thing is, is bad, you know, and we've somehow managed to keep voting them in for a long time now. It has to go. We, these people cannot be allowed to run our country anymore. They've run it into the ground. All the, the evils of Brexit are now very apparent. It's it's obvious that it was all a lie. And that's what got Boris into power. And it was lies that took him out of power. Everything was lies. So we need a clean start. We need to change those underpants, you know. <laughs> Definitely do. <laughs> no, it's... It's so difficult because uh, you know the last few years that we've all faced in whatever level that is that we've all had to live through it, whether we're with whatever our circumstances are, we've had to live through COVID and Brexit and now the the issues faced with Ukraine and the fuel crisis, and the energy crisis and the food crisis and yeah. things just don't seem to be to be coming. To, solutions aren't being found and the right people aren't making decisions that affect affect those things they literally are just sorting themselves out first and Absolutely. not not putting the people together and mm. it's um mm. swinging it back to the meetup what's really interesting is that mm. for those two days where we have it talking about your guitar talking about the community that we've created and the friendships around the world and listening to your music and chatting to people and playing on stage and just being together with a common goal is so refreshing and rewarding for that that weekend like a, a breath of fresh air over the news it's um <laughs> it's so, it's so, so nice. with, without realizing you're helping us still even today bry to uh, get away from the, mm. the frustrations of day-to-day -day life it's um so thank you for for that because I don't know that you necessarily realise how much it all means to us that side of it, let alone the music wow. that you, you've created. Wow, well that means a lot to me. It's the same with me. Music does that for me. It's the, it's the place you can go where where uh, all that stuff fades into insignificance for a while. Yeah, well I'm very happy you say that. Thank you. No, it's genuinely. Um, I mean, we literally, I, I never thought we would end up with people coming from from Europe, let alone America, Canada, Mexico, Japan, to be with us in a room. And you're so right what you say about getting people in a room. It's so much more powerful than a discussion online or a, yeah. um, a Zoom call even, because when you've got people in the room, ideas happen and things are created naturally and 
you can see the whites of people's eyes and you can shake someone's hand or put your arm around them and it's um it's a it's a lovely thing it's true very true that's brilliant. well i i hope i can be with you next time we do this <laughs> well there's always a <laughs> we'll look after you don't you worry so one of the questions that i thought would be really interesting to ask you because it's something that we all face and struggle with and it's a bit of a geeky one so apologies for that but mm. you always we always we all know the story of rory gallagher and the trouble booster and the ac30s up full yeah, yeah when you were that young and you found that and you turned it all up, how did you get away with it because it's you just can't do it in every situation and bands these days in pubs did you have to turn it down at all or did you have a way of reducing the volume back then uh well i never played it at home the ac30 no i never did that i think um well we used to do a lot of sort of uh, well you could you might call it rehearsing but it was just kind of playing for us you know we just would get together and be someplace where somebody had managed to get some space like a a school hall or um, somebody's barn or something you know there would, there would be some place that we would go and uh, hopefully we weren't disturbing people too much yeah that, that was always true but I think w even back in those days we did what we do now which was if it really is bothersome in a situation you just put baffles in front of it put blankets over it put boards or anything you, know, you can do that because the AC30 doesn't make the right sound for me unless it's turned all the way up. That's just the way it is. So you can't compromise on that. You certainly can't. It's uh, many a conversation with um, parents and yeah. local pubs when you say, oh, I need it up full to, uh, to get the real sound out of it. Yeah, and I do remember going into this tiny little studio very early on with these guys from what was the left-handed marriage in those is a group that I helped. I was never actually in the band, I don't think, but Bill Richards had this group. And we went into this studio. He'd paid some money for these people to make us a record. And they were incredibly old school, much, I mean, I'm old school, but I'm talking real old school. So <laughs> they had sort of knobs like this on the desk. They didn't have any faders or anything. And it was a tiny little desk. Anyway, they put us in there and put sort of baffles all around us. And I started playing, and they went, oh, no, 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 it's too loud, too loud, we can't record you loud. And I said, this is a studio, you know, and th that's the only way I can make the right sound. And they went, no, 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 you have to turn down, and we can do it all in the mix. We can make it sound how you want in the mix. So I thought, really? <laughs> and, um, of course, it's not true. Um, but you had to kind of fight those issues for quite a while, I remember. I mean, yeah, there's no way to, to play rock music softly really i don't think you know because it's a body thing as well it's not just that the guitar needs it the air needs it your body needs it and your soul needs it, it needs to be immersed in that sound i love it you know there's nothing quite like that um yeah the idea of the, of the best kind of therapy for me is an acdc concert yeah. <laughs> it's, it's the whole universe for the time you're there it's pure so that's kind of what I like, really. and I like my yeah. guitar really, to be that way. No, it's definitely an experience. The first time you are presented with a a very good, well-made replica of um, the Red Special 
with the correct acoustic pockets and someone plugs you into an AC30 with a treble booster because the thing's alive before you've even touched it. Mm, yeah. And you've got to, you've got to learn to tame it and then work with it. And it's very True. much a, like a symbiosis of working with a guitar rather than trying to play it. You, you, you're helping it do what it wants to do. Absolutely. Yeah. Strangely enough, I haven't mentioned Jimi Hendrix. I don't know why, because he was the ultimate inspiration for that. Yeah. He would have his guitar there and he would, even when he's doing nothing, the guitar is bursting with his sound, and that's what you... It's like the sort of clay that potters have in their hands. It has a life of its own. That's what I wanted. I wanted to turn the thing up to that point where the the feedback loop has a gain of more than one. And a lot of the time I, I do work that way, and I love it. Yeah, that's why it will sustain forever, and it will spontaneously find new harmonics as it goes on. Now, these days you can get artificial devices that do that there's this what is it called a sustainiac or something that i have a uh, a strat which has that built in that's kind of nice you flick a switch and one of the pickups is actually a transducer which feeds energy back into the string that's nice so that will do the same thing my only quarrel with that is that it's a bit too reproducible it's, it always does the same thing whereas yeah. if you're in the air with your amp it'll depend on where you stand and what you're doing uh, and I prefer that. I, I like the kind of Wild West as regards feedback. I don't want it to be the same every night. Some occasionally I do, <laughs> work, you know, but, but you want that adventure. You want to feel that yeah. thing. But you're dead right. Yes, that's that's the way I would put it as well. You, the guitar has more, almost more energy than you can handle. You have to, yeah. to be on the sort of taming side rather than pushing it out. Yeah, and I'm not very good at playing guitars that don't do that. Really, you know, I, I I need it to be that kind of a voice, and it's it is Jimi Hendrix, Star Spangled Banner, and everything. You know, he's not hitting the strings throughout that whole piece. I think you know, <laughs> guitar speaking, and he's just molding it and putting his fingers in certain places. We're working with a whammy bar, moving his body. That's very inspiring to me. That, that's that's just the ultimate guitar speak, if you like. For me. Yeah. No, it's it's a great piece, and it's it's really interesting talking to you about it because it, not everyone understands it for a start. The feeling that you get when it when it's right and how it goes through you, and you 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 feel the guitar vibrating in your hands and against your body, and it it certainly speaks and creates different um, inspirations for music. And yeah. you see a lot of musicians will use different effects or different guitars to inspire them over the years mm. i find it absolutely fascinating that you've stuck with the red special for your whole career and you've managed to create so many different styles of music tones sounds it I, it's absolutely mind-boggling that you've been able to stay inspired mm. and create so much wonderful music with the one thing that's well, not an easy task either well thank you for saying that well I, th I suppose he's like a singer. He, once he found, once he finds his voice, that's it. You don't have different choices of which voice you use. You know, to me, that's with the guitar. I, I found my sort of optimum instrument, and that's that's my my route to everything I want to do. And it will do everything. It's made, I, partly partly luck, I think. Partly some good planning. It was a great find when I had these three pickups and started experimenting with combinations of them. That was a real eye-opener because nobody had ever talked to me about stuff like that. And I suddenly realized that I wanted all these sounds. I didn't want to limit myself to just a few of them by having a rotating switch like they do on 
a Stratocaster. I wanted to have every sound available. So I designed this switching system with my dad, of course, where you can have any combination of the three and you can change the phase. That's the crucial thing. So you go from a very warm in-phase sound to a, a very bright and uh, sparkling out-of-phase sound. So that's partly why the guitar is so versatile, using every combination of those pickups. Very, I still get excited about stuff like that. And um, yeah, the guitar gives me, it, it does keep on giving, it does, it, it'll do pretty much everything. There's been moments where something else has happened. I've probably told this one before, like the story of me and Mac in the studio doing a crazy little thing called Love. And I said, oh, I want to do something, this is a kind of period track, I want to do something which is very, very James Burton. I, I want to sound authentic for this kind of rockabilly style. Because, you, you know, it's, it's, it's blues meets country, really. And James Burton was the guy who did it on those records. And, and, uh, and I said, my guitar on this particular setting, I'm talking to Mac now, is, you know, this sounds very much like a Telecaster. So Mac, being a dour old bastard, said, um, well, if you want it to sound like a Telecaster, why don't you play a Telecaster? So I went, yeah, okay, but do we have one? And Roger had one. Well, he, I don't know what, I think it was a broadcaster or whatever, but, but I, I picked that thing up. And yes, I was James Burton for a day. <laughs> so, and I don't regret it. I think that was fine. But there's been very few occasions when my guitar didn't do it. And of course, live, it works fine. You know, I guess. it's... Uh, but I, do, I have a great admiration for those old guitars, which I could never afford. Telecaster is a magical instrument, isn't it? Absolutely magical. Mm. It doesn't sound anything like a Strat. Amazing instrument. And I always loved that Gibson SG. A friend of mine that I was at school with um, had one when we were about eight, four, 16, 17. And I remember looking at it with awe and jealousy, thinking, oh, my God. If I could ever learn, I have one now, and I really love it. There's something about the shape of it, and the sound of it, and the feel of it. Very different from my guitar. It's got an incredibly thin neck and everything, but it's beautiful, and I, I really have a great respect for those old guitars. When I when I come to make records, though, I pick up my guitar. It just happens. What did your friends think when you were seventeen, eighteen, and you you turn up with the Red Special? homemade guitar and they've got others you know that's if you were to talk about that to someone a youngster today going to school they'd probably think dad i'm not taking the homemade guitar to my guitar to school today i'm going to get laughed at was how did you feel it was a bit that way yeah I, I was a little embarrassed in a way thinking you know this doesn't really fit in with my mates i remember i went to one i don't think i've ever talked about this but i went to a sort of rehearsal of one of my friends in a little room somewhere and he's got a guitar i'm not quite sure what it was but it had tape wound strings and he was doing that thing which jeff beck liked so much between the rehearsal periods he would play things like the james bond theme or um oh, i can't remember what they were, things of the time very clangy kind of clean sound and that's all he knew. Now, I went along and I was supposed to play with him for some reason. And I remember I got it out of the box and, and this guy went, what does that do? <laughs> you know, I'm thinking, what is this? And I plugged it in and, and kind of showed them what it could do. And they all went, hmm. <laughs> you know, it was like they didn't put it down. They realized that there was something there, but it was completely foreign to them. Yeah. 
uh, they were just in a different world and I guess gradually I got over the embarrassment because when I got my system right it did sound it started to sound impressive but in those days I, I hadn't got to the AC30 I think I had a transistor amp which really didn't sound that great um, it was that moment in this shop in Warder Street called Take 5 when we discovered two quite beaten up AC30s and I bought them I think they were 30 quid each which was a lot of money for me in those days um, but I remember in the shop, I'd taken a little treble booster along, plugged my, I took my guitar as well, plugged the guitar into the treble booster, treble booster into the AC30, turned it all the way up, and it was there. The sound was there. That's That was my dream sound. Inspired by Rory Gallagher, definitely, who showed me how he got his sound. And I knew then that was that was it. And really, nothing, essentially nothing's changed since then. I achieve it in slightly different ways, you know, when all the digital stuff's come along. The amps are kind of rebuilt because they weren't very robust, all that sort of stuff. But essentially, it's a guitar, a little treble booster, which takes the bottom off really, it stops it making farting noises, makes it sustain. And that wonderful, wonderful AC30 amp, yeah. which is just a piece of magic, in my opinion. Because of my dad, I partly know why. It's because of that uh, Class A configuration that they put the valves in. You, you guys know all about that as well now, I'm sure. But, you know, very different from the, the, the Marshall uh, way of push-pull, where there is never a point where it's just a clean output. You know, you, you can't turn it down enough to make it clean. It's always got the that sort of slight distortion in the, the, the AC30, when it's right down, is like a hi-fi amp. And you get that whole journey where the, you're working your way up the characteristic curve into the curvy part, where gradually you get compression, gradually you get distortion, but very nice kind of distortion because it's a valve. Valves do that. It's electrons speeding through the air, and uh, there's nothing like it really. <laughs> I just love them. Yeah. yeah it's, it's really nice to hear you talk about <clears throat> that experience with the friends as well because it's it's mm. always puzzled me like how one thing to know the story that you've told but to then yeah. how did you actually feel taking it with you it's always made me think i wonder if he was ever nervous taking it around and mm. yeah my friend my close friends at school were okay because they'd seen it in development I, I took it in when it was just a piece of wood and then when it was sort of first had strings on and none of the um well even before it had um yeah, before it had strings and then before it was finished, there was no. And I took it and I remember that I think there's a picture of me playing it like this, but there's no strings. Just sort yeah. of wondering what it was going to feel like when it was finished. And they all did love it. I remember my friend Woolly Hamilton, who was quite a, an inspiration on me at the time, quite an influence. He got hold of it and went, Yeah, it's going to be great. It's going to be the best guitar ever. So people were quite encouraging to me at school. But it was an illegal thing. We weren't allowed to have it electric guitars at school and you had to hide them we went behind the cycle sheds to play together because we'd have been thrown out yeah. the headmaster was completely against anything like this which was sub subversive in his view so violins were okay electric guitars were not okay <laughs> it's so interesting isn't it to think how things have changed so quickly mm. and, and how how different it was. I, I know we talked to some of the youngsters. We've got a lot of great youngsters in the group now, and there's some fantastic guitar players. And 
Mm. Um, the difference now is they can jump onto the internet and find out about the guitar. They can mm. click a button and the guitar arrives the next day. Um, some of us are old enough to remember before the internet where you, you couldn't do that and you had to go to a music shop and if they didn't have it, you had to wait or find a magazine and, mm. and buy the guitar mail order. But mm. I, I can't think how it must have been to start that journey of making the guitar from scratch and knowing where you wanted to, to get to with it and spending that period of time like wanting it. Was it talked about at home every day at the dinner table or? Oh no, it just went on in the background. Yeah. <laughs> no, there was always other things to talk about. <laughs> school days, you know, yeah. stressful in itself. Yeah. Did your mum get involved at all, Bri? in any of the decisions not or the, suggestions not in making the guitar no but she was very supportive once i started playing and my dad kind of wouldn't let himself be supportive strangely. although <laughs> he when we first went on our american tour he made a graph at home and put a little um not a graph sorry a map which I think you can see in one of these books. I think in the Neil Preston book, he made beautiful maps, all nicely shaded with each city marked on it and our itinerary with arrows on it. Beautiful kind of calligraphy, my dad. And so in, on some ways, in some ways, he was being supportive in the, the way he knew how. He was sort of providing support behind the scenes, but he was still telling me I shouldn't be doing it. It's very odd. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, right, sir. I've probably taken up enough of your time. Well, it's been very good. I've really enjoyed it, and I hope you guys out there enjoy it. I hope it's all right. No, I'm sure people will lose their minds that you agreed to do it. <laughs> well, it's great. I'm glad you kind of ushered me into this, to doing this. It's great, and uh, you know, and and I'm serious about wanting to come and be with you guys because it's something amazing. I'm quite shy, really, when it comes down. It, it 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 takes a bit of courage to step into something like that because I'm still I'm still the boy that I used to be inside. So walking in there will be quite a a thing. But I'm highly um, proud that you guys want to even talk about the guitar. It's my baby. Well, and I think it's you, your feelings aren't just your own we get quite a lot of people that haven't been before and they they'll email in and say i really want to come but i've never been to one i don't play guitar i just like the guitar or do you make me stand on stage i won't know anyone um mm. and the response is always the same is if you have an interest in it and you're a love for the thing then you're welcome to come because you've got people that build guitars people that play people that are just interested people that just love the music and then you've got those of us that really now after the six years we've been doing it just go so we can see our friends every year no, <laughs> and, the, very nice, and, the, yeah. and the guitars are just um an added bonus good that's good that's all good <laughs> <laughs> so you'll be most welcome well, we've, a couple of us have got together and made you something to commemorate you being on the podcast which i'd like to post to you oh. it's a, a mahogany plaque with a um wow a podcast coin in it which I'll have to That's try, and get, try and get sent to you. How beautiful is that? Thank you so much. Love it. We'll, we'll sort that out and get that over thank to you. you. Um, so thank you for coming on. And um, Right. Well, anything I can do, you know where I am now, okay? Yep. And likewise. And um, 
Brian, thanks so much for <laughs> so much for your time today. It's been great talking to you. You too, John. Take care. God bless. Well, what can I say? Thank you, Bryce, so much for all your time and effort in allowing me to pester you into recording an episode of the Red Special Guitar Podcast. It was an absolute treat to get to speak to you and watching back editing and looking at the review. I still have to pinch myself to believe that it happened, but thank you so much. They say don't meet your heroes. Absolutely agree. You want to interview them on a Zoom podcast. That's how you want to meet them and get to speak to them properly and understand them. Now, some of you might be thinking, we've got Brian May on the podcast, so what can we do next? Well, to me, this is just the start. This is the first chapter complete in the book of the Red Special Guitar Podcast. We've got lots and lots of other guests lined up and other thoughts on where the channel could go. So please make sure, if you don't, that you follow us, subscribe. There's links in the description below to be able to find all of our social media handles and how you can support us on Patreon. But for now, I think we should all just take a deep breath and breathe in that wonderful episode that was Brian Harold May. Thanks everyone, catch you later.